Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, team. Uh, so welcome back to Micromobility Podcast. We're going to be shaking things up a little bit um, for the next couple of weeks. And uh, one of the bits of feedback that we've been getting is that people would like to hear a little bit more about what the news is, what's going on in the space of micromobility. Obviously, it's a very fast-moving and fast-paced industry. Um, and we know of no better person to do that than Michael Nucker. How are you doing today, Michael? Oliver, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, uh, it's, it's really exciting to have you on. Um, we, we had... Uh, we had such a great time together at um, the Micromobility Conference and, and certainly uh, it's, it's very funny but I, I came to introducing you around the halls as uh, this is Michael, Michael Nucker, he's a micromobility Twitter celebrity <laughs> uh, and certainly you seem to know most people in the space or most people followed you so I thought um, it would be awesome if we could get you, know, get you on and, and, um, and if you just take us through like what are we, what, are, what is the most exciting news of the last, um, of the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Micromobility every week, there's, yeah, we can't keep up, right? Uh, there always seems to be a new funding announcement or uh, launches across the country and across the globe. Um, but I think, it, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen some really interesting moves in just the scooter space, um, especially in the international market. And we talked a little bit about this before, but uh, there's the announcement of Grow Mobility out of Latin America, yeah, right? Um, and you see two of the large micromobility scooter operators from Yellow from Brazil and also Grin, Grin from Mexico, uh, actually combine yep. forces and raise a fresh $150 million round. And uh, I think what's also interesting yeah. here is that this is also a roll up of two other companies, little regional players from South Central America um, and now you have this basically Latin America powerhouse able to take on uh, the likes of Bird and Line uh, with a war chest they raise themselves. So, you know, this we've talked about consolidation a lot in the market, right? And I, it's good to start seeing the first steps here. And I think we'll see a lot more here in 2019, especially in Europe. In Asia, where there's a plethora of different operators um, emerging around. Yeah, absolutely. So, how how big is their coverage? I'm I'm not super familiar with them. Obviously, the CEO um, was up on stage during the micromobility conference and talked a lot about the sort of untapped or unlimited demand. And it seems like um, talking to friends who live in Mexico City, it's like, hey, they've got a heap of operators in those markets. So how, how big is the coverage of these um, of these of these two big players? Yeah. And then how many other players are there in the markets in Latin America that you know of? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was quite surprised actually. Uh, both the companies claim that they're in six uh, Latin America countries already. And they are supporting and operating around 130, 140,000 vehicles across those six countries. Um, and, uh, and somewhere in the range of almost 3 million trips in the last six months. So this, this is quite a sizable operation, right? Um, and, you know, they, we know that Bird and Lime have both launched in Mexico and a few other Latin America countries. Um, and I'm sure uh, a few other operators from Europe are eyeing 
uh, uh, this geographic region as investors and a lot of the pitches have been around um, great weather, decent infrastructure, um, and just lower operational costs, which is you know one of the biggest burdens uh, for scooter operators moving forward is how do you lower your ops costs with recharging and rebalancing, getting vehicles where they need to be on a daily basis. So yeah, yep. I, yeah, yeah, completely. And if you can consolidate that across a different, yeah, a couple of different companies into yeah. one, obviously makes a, a, a big difference. Yeah, I, I, I think like the good thing here is that they're doing it early on, and they're you know prepping for the inevitable right now. And now they're stronger together, able to hire people faster, um, and also with the supply chain constraints, uh, reach down into the the, the the Chinese supply chain and, and get those vehicles out and onto the markets where they're at as soon as possible to be able to compete and, and grow their market share with these bigger players with you know the hundreds of millions of dollars which would perfect segue into the latest Lime funding announcement uh, over the last yeah, absolutely. Uh, few days. The Lime Series D announcement, I think, or D in two years. Yep. Uh, yep. Series D, what, yep. It was around three, $310 million round yeah, I, I mean, led led by led by Bain. Um, yeah, no, I find that I found this a sort of a crazy thing. It, I mean, in, in in some ways, it's a it's just crazy because it's 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 like the numbers you're talking about are so big for something that's so young. Um, and also as well, I think that there's I mean, this comes fresh off the the bird raise of about three hundred million a month and a month and a half ago. Um, and they're really just sort of like gearing up in this war chest of, of like, hey, we're going to go out into the marketplace and we're, we're, we're in theory um, going to be able to deploy this. So the thing that I find really interesting about this is just the, the, the almost like the, the alignment of capital. These guys are going to be looking for decent returns. And for me, like a lot of the low hanging fruit that you're going to see, you, there's going to be this sort of like this push up against the, the regulatory caps yeah. um, in a lot of these markets that you're, that you're seeing where, you know, hey, San Francisco, a lot of the largest US cities or have already either banned scooters outright yeah. or said like, yes, you can operate, but you're only going to operate on these caps and they're putting them on trial. Um, and we're seeing the same thing in Australia and New Zealand. Asia obviously hasn't really super expanded yet a lot. And, and this, you know, Bird, it, it, there is an aspect of it which I hadn't really appreciated until I really started digging in with the Bird and Lime um, team as, as they were talking about their raising um, and, and had a chance to talk to some of the team there. Um, but, you know, like these are very complex businesses and it's, I think about it from an operational perspective, obviously coming from an operations background, but there's really a very deep supply chain aspect to this. There's a, um, you know, there's, there's, there's um, network effects that you get just with scale. Um, we're actually having the capital yeah. bank to be able to make all this stuff work. You can't, like, this is just money that you need to have to even, like, work this stuff out, uh, work out the Yeah, market, and I also yeah. think, uh, on top of operations, the hardware supply chain is also the government relations aspect that I think was underestimated uh, early on in this space and how uh, important and vital cities were into this whole process of actually governing their streets and instituting these regulations and legislation uh, for different permits and vehicle caps. I, I, I just I get a sense that, that this wasn't anticipated, uh, at least not in this way it's played out. And I think part of that reason is with a lot of cities in North America, especially being burned or feeling burned with uh, the ride hailing companies like Lyft and Uber coming in um, and, and kind of going for state preemption and rules and not allowing cities to actually create their own guidelines and, 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 and laws around ride hailing firms. Um, and now you've seen Bird and Lime, you know, hire lobbyists at the state, federal, city level, they hire 
government relations people in every city, country around the world, and, and that's, a, that's a huge cost. And then you times that by, I don't know how many other scooter companies are around the world, and, and that's, a, that's a, a good chunk of change that these companies are investing in uh, on the regulatory side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think the regulatory part of it is just a um, such as that I always talk a lot about sort of like the the, the challenges with um, the, the the abilities of cities to be able to enforce a lot a lot more so in micro mobility, um, just because the political power um, of a city to be able to, um, to to be able to enforce against uh, Uber or Lyft in the past, and the fact that like cities, you know, it's like you can just go they can go out and collect all the scooters up and then put them in a warehouse and hold these companies to ransom, and they don't have the ability to. Uh, you know, it just means that they they are getting forced to work with uh, they're getting forced to work with the with the governments a lot more so than they have in the past. And I and I to, yeah exactly to your point, it's they I think they maybe undercalculated that in the in the beginning. It'll be it'll just be interesting to see how quickly that can evolve because you also have on the other side of it as well the ability to um, integrate with infrastructure and how quickly that that infrastructure play will. Um, you know, for, for cities to be able to adapt to infrastructure in these particular models, um, and and there is a very strong mismatch that I see at the moment between capital as it's currently aligned into these into these products, yeah. um, and into these companies, and and the cities saying like, well, you know, <laughs> how how is this going to work? You have funding to go and drop ten thousand scooters into the city, but like, how is that going to work from our perspective um, of being able to integrate it into our current infrastructure? And I just you know, I don't yeah. see, I, I don't see how that's going to play. I don't quite know how that's going to play out yet. So, very exciting. Um, well, look, that's all we have time for in this particular session. But um, I really look forward to having you on next week. I'm sure there will be this is such a fast-moving world. I'm sure we're going to have plenty to discuss next time we uh, we yeah, at least three new scooter companies. But... <laughs> Absolutely. And Michael, just just for everybody's uh, reference, so if they if people want to follow you, how do they how do they get in touch? Um, I'm at, on Twitter at at Michael Naka. Uh, M-I-C-H-A-L-N-A-K-A. Excellent. And uh, and if you haven't already, go and sign up for the Movements newsletter. Uh, Michael's newsletter he does with Adam Feldman. Cool. All right, mate. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. See you next week. All right. Next up, we have material from the recent micromobility conference in California that we ran. This one is the government panel. And we're going to be releasing more and more of this material over the next coming weeks. Look out for it. But before we do that, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Joyride. There are countless current and aspiring micromobility fleet operators out there. If you're one of these, then you probably know you've got what it takes to run a fleet efficiently and profitably. You're doing your research, reading blogs and articles, downloading reports, and listening to this podcast. The metrics from those venture-funded companies are mind-blowing, but you wonder how things would look if you focused on your local market. Joyride provides the custom white-label mobile apps and scalable backend that allows everybody from the small local operator to transit agencies to launch their own micromobility fleets within weeks. Plus, they have partnerships with all the major manufacturers, so you're guaranteed to have the highest quality hardware when you launch your own bikes or scooters. Here is an example of what one of Joyride's customers has accomplished. The operator launched with a fleet of 200 electric scooters in their hometown, and within two months they were making six figures from rides all while competing in a city that already had some of the largest scooter share companies operating. This doesn't even include the additional revenue they're generating through the Joyride advertising platform that allows you to connect your customers with retail partners around the city. Maybe you didn't think you could compete in the micromobility space before. Maybe you thought the market was already controlled by a few giants. Joyride levels the playing field for your operators. 
allowing anybody succeed to succeed with their fleet. Whether you're an independent operator with a desire to launch locally or a transit agency looking to solve the first and last mile for your customers, Joyride helps you find the mobility share solution that works. Start your own scooter or bike share system today. See more at joyride.city. That's joyride.city. It's time to join the global micromobility movement. Mention the Micromobility Podcast and receive your first month free. Thank you to Joyride for supporting 5x5 and micromobility. All right. From scooters to cities. Horace's presentation at the beginning of the day showed what happens in cities and how basically countries and, of course, inside those countries and cities become power vacuums. And we are moving increasingly into urban centers where increasingly the power, the wealth, the capital, everything is concentrated. Uh, and, of course, cities are critical to the future of mobility. Um, so I want to just very briefly say I'm excited for uh, the panel, and I'm excited that uh, Katie Fahrenbacher is actually moderating this panel. Uh, Katie is a senior writer at GreenBiz. I've actually, I was looking back in time, I've been reading Katie for almost 15 years now, way back when she was at actually GigaOM, and she's been a very prolific and important writer on the overall green mobility space, and she also helps run an amazing conference in Oakland, transportation conference in Oakland called The Verge. Um, so with that, I'll invite Katie and the city panelists onto the stage. actually come to the front because this is your target audience and customer and one of the most important players in the micromobility space. Um, so as James kindly introduced me as, I'm Katie Fahrenbacher, senior writer with GreenBiz. I'm really excited to interview these guys today. Um, the rare uh, voice of the public sector here in this space filled with 90% entrepreneurs and investors in the room. Um, and like I said, cities are so important and crucial to this conversation. Um, so I'm going to briefly introduce you guys and then I'm going to have each of the speakers get you guys up to speed on um, where they are in the process of deploying their micromobility solutions, bikes and scooters. So Ryan, let's start with you. Ryan Russo, uh, Director of Department of Transportation for Oakland. So Ryan, in 30 seconds, let everyone, <laughs> you can go a little over, um, let everyone know about um, where you guys are in the scooter process and, um, and bike sharing. Sure, great, thanks Katie. So welcome to the East Bay of the Bay Area. Oakland is part of the East Bay. It's beautiful, hope you're loving it here. Um, so the city of Oakland, 420,000 people just uh, a bit south of here. Uh, we are real leaders in the shared mobility uh, area and we, do, we lead that way because we see it as a way to pursue our values. And our values are inclusiveness, valuing diversity and making sure our residents can stay in Oakland and have options for transportation that don't require them to spend $9,000 a year on a personal automobile. So we have, we're part of the five city regional bike share partnership with Ford Go Bike. We were the first uh, city to have free, in the Bay Area to have free floating car share, a service called Gig Get In and Go. Uh, operated by AAA of Northern California, where you can find, it's not micro-mobility, but it's a Toyota Prius, pretty small. You can find it on your phone, take it, rent it. And we've also had uh, scooters operating in our city uh, 
for about the last nine or 10 months. And we've had, we basically used the pre-regulatory phase as a de facto pilot. So um, we sort of let the birds and limes of the world operate uh, in Oakland. And what we did was we watched and we learned, as we'll talk about, we learned a lot very quickly about how much this form of mobility uh, served populations that you might not um, have thought. It's not about, we don't have as many tech bros in Oakland and the East Bay. We have construction workers building new buildings. No They're tech bros here. Yeah, <laughs> no, none. Um, we had construction workers riding it. We had young people riding to their barista jobs at our coffee houses, people of color. And so that informed the policies and the approach that we took. And we've developed uh, regulations, municipal code changes, a master fee schedule, and terms and conditions for a permit program, which uh, maybe tomorrow or Monday, if you're paying attention, we are going to open our permit window for scooter companies to apply. And they'll have to meet our terms and conditions to meet the public good uh, in Oakland. And they'll have, what, two weeks, something, a couple weeks to? Exactly. Yep. You got to you read, our, read our, our permit window opens, you read our terms and conditions, you put in your application. Okay. And Julie, this is a Julie Madero. She's the chair of the Traffic and Transportation Commission for the city of Claremont, um, Southern California city. Um, tell us a little bit about the process that you guys are in. So Claremont is a much smaller city than Oakland. We're a town of about 36,000. And in that 36,000 person, 11 square mile town, we have seven colleges and universities. So we are a town that prides itself on having a lot of community input. Every single person in the community wants to have a say in every single thing that we do. It's one of the great things about being on one of these commissions, which is a volunteer commission, that people show up to the meetings and they have a lot to say, and they really want to be part of all of our decision making. That means we don't make decisions particularly fast all the time. <laughs> Uh, because everybody wants to have a say, and it's really important to us that when we make decisions, we do it with the buy-in of all the different fraction, factions of our community. Um, what that means is that right now we have a temporary ban on scooters in place while we get our wording together so we can run a pilot in a way that says, everybody who comes in, these are the things we care about as a community, these are the things you have to talk about. So we're working as fast as we can with an engineering staff of two and a community of 36,000 that all want to have a say to get a pilot going and trying to figure out what we can learn from some of the bigger cities that have already done this and how that does or doesn't apply to a much smaller city with a very um, unique demographic. All right, and Salida Reynolds, General Manager of Los Angeles Department of Transportation. Alex Roy, I give you a shout out as a rock star. Um, tell us where LA is in the process of your scooter and bike share. Sure, and uh, I first, I think we all wanted to thank Ryan for being the token male yes. on the panel. Not, not a male. Um, to make sure we had some diversity on this panel at least, right? That was really important. Um, for us, and I have to also just shout out quickly that both Ryan and I in our previous jobs, Ryan at New York City DOT and me at uh, SFMTA, uh, were part of the teams that launched some of the original bike share schemes in cities um, in New York, the, the massively successful city bike. Um, and in San Francisco, I don't know if he's still here, but Heath Maddox uh, launched Bay Area Bike Share uh, BABS, maybe worst acronym ever or worst acronym ever, I'm not sure. Um, but it was, it was a really exciting time and, and it felt like governments were in startups and we learned a lot. 
And unfortunately for all of you, we learned a lot. <laughs> and so this time around, uh, we're taking a little bit uh, different approach to how we're bringing startup mobility into our cities. Um, LA Metro has a bike share system that's been in place for a couple of years. It's in the process of expanding and adding e-bikes. As an extension of transit, you can actually use your tap card to transfer off the bus onto a Metro bike share bike. And uh, we have about seven or eight um, uh, e-mobility companies or, or micro-mobility companies that have a conditional use permit. On Monday, we opened our uh, permanent permit or our, our year-long permit. Um, and Marcel Porras, who is, heads up our Bureau of Transportation Technology, is here. If you have questions about it, ask him. He's a really tall Colombian guy somewhere um, in the audience. And uh, we're expecting that the companies that come into that permit program um, really play by the rules that we've set out, which primarily include two things. One is service hours in low-income communities, and two is compliance with uh, the APIs that we published on GitHub um, called the Mobility Data Specifications. All right, Brianna Orr, she's uh, in charge of the e-scooter pilot for the city of Portland. Brianna, let us know. And she, they just came out with the, the scooter data study that uh, most of you have probably read. So Brianna, tell us uh, the process. Yeah, so as you all know, uh, a, little, a little bit about uh, Bike Town um, from our folks at Jump that presented earlier. But that program launched in 2016, a uh, thousand bike system that uh, is operated by Motivate, uh, now Lyft. And um, thanks to that lock to technology, we've been able to really expand and grow that system um, with very little investment. Um, so using existing bike racks that are throughout the city, um, we've been able to go from 100 stations to 140 stations in the last couple years um, using that geofence technology, and uh, we've seen ridership growth because of that. Um, we've also uh, made a more dockless experience for our annual members. Um, so if you're an annual member, you don't, uh, you don't have an extra fee if you're locking out of Hub. Um, so, so with that, um, again, going to the, uh, a huge uh, percentage of ridership, 29% um, increase in 2018. Um, and with Bike Town, we also launched a complimentary uh, uh, service called Adaptive Bike Town for people with disabilities, uh, folks that can't balance on a two-wheeled traditional bike. Um, and that service really came at the urging of our disability, disability advocates within the city looking for something that could work for them. So we have a 15-bike uh, fleet that's uh, operated out of a partner bike shop, Kerr Bikes, and um, a huge success uh, in terms of uh, the, just the way that the community has really embraced that program. Um, and we're in our, we just finished our second pilot year with that, and we doubled ridership in that second year as well. Um, so with e-scooters, uh, as I think a lot of folks know, we launched a, a four-month pilot last year, um, and we just wrapped up our evaluation of uh, and published a findings report. Um, we learned a lot through that process um, and really great working relationships with the companies that participated in that. Um, and so we had about 2,000 scooters uh, operating throughout the city, and um, like some of my colleagues, and then took notes from, you know, certainly LA uh, with the MDS standards. Um, and, and I think that was a big uh, foundation for, for being able to really understand, A, what's happening on our streets, and B, being able to communicate the value of this new micromobility technology to the public. Um, and the last two things I'll say is uh, with BikeShare coming up this year, we have a RFP that's going to be uh, out in the next, uh, very soon. And um, with e-scooters, uh, we're also gonna have a second pilot um, launching early spring.
All right, I definitely didn't keep you guys under the 30 seconds on each of those. But um, all right, so biggest lessons learned. Uh, Salida, let's start with you, um, through, the, through the scooter process specifically. Through the most recent one that mm -hmm. we went through. So I think for us, um, we tried to take advantage actually of previous lessons learned. I think um, we have a lot of battle scars from the first rounds of um, you know, basically venture capital funded private mobility coming into the public realm um, in cities in 2012 and 2013. And we also had an understanding of how bike share um, can, docked bike share can work in cities. So we had been thinking for the last three and a half years or so about how cities were going to insert ourselves back into the product workflow of private companies coming into cities because the lessons learned from um, Uber and Lyft's first round of TNC deployment uh, was that we really, ev kind of everybody lost. Um, those companies uh, are still struggling to kind of get past an initial plateau of adoption. Um, cities are seeing drops in transit ridership and increases in congestion. And it was clear that in order for us to welcome in a new form of mobility that we think has tremendous potential to solve some of our steepest challenges, we needed cities to be back as the hub in the middle of the wheel. And so we had been thinking about how we were going to manage not the device, but the business model, right? And the business model is on-demand, ubiquitous private mobility in your smartphone. And so when we built MDS, we, we originally had planned to take our sweet time and build that code base over the course of maybe a year and a half because we were thinking about it as a way to manage autonomous vehicles. But when scooters showed up, we built it in more like um, six, six weeks, something like that. Um, and so that was uh, an opportunity to finally take advantage of a moment um, where we could, as cities, not just Los Angeles, but as cities come together and say, We've thought about this. This is the data we want. Here's how we want to be in your product workflow. And we think that there are wins in here if we can get to a better public-private collaboration. I think a lesson learned that um, is still missing from the dialogue is that uh, people perceive all kinds of active transportation, including biking and scooters and all of it, as outside the social norm. They perceive it as something for people who are predominantly young and predominantly male. And for us to leverage the full sort of potential of these things, we have to normalize the use of these as transportation options. And foundational to that is building a connected, protected network of, uh, of, of sort of mobility lanes or green lanes or bike lanes or whatever we're calling them these days um, to make sure that Everybody, me, my kids, my mom, um, can use these things, and you don't have to think about it, and it's not a part of your identity. You don't think of yourself as a scooter enthusiast. You just think of yourself as somebody who needs to get to transit. Yeah. Brianna, what were the biggest lessons learned out of the Portland um, study? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of the, the opposite of what you said, uh, or just the other side of that, is how important and it was and, and how much... Uh, how much working together can really tell a great story. So, um, you know, the companies that we worked with and, and being able to really set a platform in Portland, um, you know, setting our values up, uh, up front and saying, we want you to align your business model um, to meet these four goals. So we, you know, set out to, to meet our, um, 
uh, mode shift goals, um, climate emission goals, uh, equity goals, and around uh, vision zero, uh, our safety goals. So um, I think when uh, companies you know, are, are coming to that and, and bringing, uh, bringing their business model to meet that, um, and being able to have the data that, that proves it, um, not that just that companies are saying that this is good for cities, but having a city say this is good for cities, I think that, that holds a lot more weight um, and can really help us all. Um, I think uh, really specifically a, a lesson learned um, that we're going to be looking for um, in our next pilot is uh, partners who can really help us solve the sidewalk riding issue. Um, this is a huge concern that we heard from our, our uh, community um, and something that we certainly want to be working on and, and work in partnership with um, the companies um, uh, participating in Portland. Ryan, the biggest lessons from the kind of open pilot you guys did and then also what are still causes for concern for you? Sure. Um, if I may, Katie, I'm just just to step back a little bit and sort of add on to what Salita was saying. The the context here, just um, you know, we've been doing this work a lot of years, building bike lanes, trying to make cities more equitable, sustainable, be less auto dependent. Um, we are losing. Uh, people are owning more cars privately. They're driving them more more miles and. Um, and our transportation sector is contributing to climate change more than any other sector. And, and so, um, and one of the reasons why we're losing is because cities did not have a say in the development and deployment of new technologies, specifically what euphemistically was called TNCs, just to, you know, they just decided to give it some sort of technical name uh, the ride-hailing companies, uh, and we have no ability to say, well, we, you know, cities would love to have said, well, this is a trunk transit corridor, let's price Uber and Lyft more because we have good transit service there, or we have, we have goals of a more equitable and a less racist city because, uh, so we want to make sure you serve certain neighborhoods a certain way. Um, we want to make sure that low-income people have, have discounts uh, and if they're going to job training, that they can take those services. We couldn't say a single thing about those services, and instead, the competitive race has meant depriving our transit operators of riders because choice riders have got this sort of subsidized by venture capital product that took people off, in theory, you know, admittedly, a product that gets you there less with less convenience because it's shared, because it's a bus. And so our transit operators are losing ridership. People are owning more cars. They're driving more. So unfortunately for the micromobility industry, you come along. And because your vehicle is sitting in the public right-of-way in that commercial transaction, that's basically the same exact transaction that an Uber or Lyft is, uh, happens in the right-of-way. But there's no driver. Because it's left there, we get to design and say, do whatever we want. Right, right now, whatever we want. We can ban them and wait until we get consensus in community meetings. We can, we can say, and this is what we're doing in Oakland and what we're learning, we're saying, make sure you have a certain percentage distributed to our historically disadvantaged neighborhoods who have less investment um, and, and, and who we want to see uh, get lifted up. We can say that, for, have a low income program where you need to have a significant discount and so unfortunately for this industry, this is, you're, you're getting all of our creativity, all of our 
social bicycles, all of our social designing our cities, um, you know, trying to uh, overly plan things. We're getting that with this with this industry, and it's the right thing to do. But there's this, but there's this, but there's this big other thing, and now we have this conflict where those companies that did that own these other companies. So, so that's a real trick for us and something we should probably talk about. So what we're learning um, is, is that uh, uh, we need to make sure that these programs serve our values and, and support the city's goals. And we'd like to do it for all of mobility, and I think Salida has, is making sure that this MDS, which is amazing, is sort of our foot foot in the door. Um, so how do we make it support all of our goals? And we were trying to leverage that in Oakland. It started a discussion. People were like, this is happening in the right-of-way, and these scooter companies are billion-dollar companies. Let's charge them all of this money. And you know, we kind of pointed out how little we charge uh, private owners of automobiles to park in the public right-of-way. So we scaled um, people in Oakland. Some of our council people said, do what Santa Monica did and charge them a dollar every day just to be there and to sort of glean money from these companies. We want to glean public benefits. And um, we decided to have our right-of-way fee match what we do for on-street parking. So we're only charging 10 cents a parking event in our downtown, in our parking metered areas. So the scooter companies don't have to pay to park in our right-of-way if motorists aren't paying in our right-of-way. Yes. That's something we put in our fee. Have you started to learn lessons about being too restrictive? You know, you're saying we're kind of doing, starting to do these things, and then you look to San Francisco, yeah. who has, you know, two scooter companies and pretty capped restrictively. Um, like, where's the balance, um, and, and how do we open it up and bring in, in more of these micro-mobility companies if, if you want to? Well, I, I think that you can see already in a couple of bills that are moving in state legislatures um, that are not coincidentally very red states. Um, preemption bills, right, for, as, a re, as, a, and, as an industry response against perceived overregulation. So uh, that is the same playbook that Uber and Lyft use. They marched up to state legislatures and preempted cities out of doing any kind of regulation. So, you know, for, for all of you who have a frustration and you're thinking, well, but what about those damn cars? Why aren't cities regulating cars? Let's form a coalition and march up to Sacramento and figure out how to get that done. I don't think anybody up on this stage would say that the, the system we have now is equitable, um, but we are preempted out of doing that in a lot of cases because of the amount of dollars invested in lobbying. I think the difference this go-round is that legislatures, electeds, tend to come from an older, wealthier demographic that tends to not be a fan um, of this particular sector of the, the sort of emerging mobility market. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes down. But those bills have the hallmarks of, you know, preempting cities from regulating our sidewalks, preempting cities from putting caps on the fleet of scooters uh, or bikes that are in cities, um, and, and doing a number of other things that is a response to perceived overregulation. So I don't think that any of us, and, and that's not something any of us are interested in, right? The only way this is going to work is if cities think more like product companies 
and product companies think more like cities. Thank you. And what that means is that we have to sit down, shut up, be humble, and listen to each other and make each other's worries our worries because I, I don't think anybody on this stage really knows what it feels like to be inside a startup environment. And I will wager that a lot of y'all in the audience have no idea what it feels like to sit in our seats. The encouraging thing about this sector is the cross-pollination that you're starting to see of people who are uh, work for micromobility companies who come from cities. Um, and I'd love to see the other, you know, migration, cross-migration in the other direction. Because that's really the, the best way, I think, to avoid um, this, these kinds of imbalances in the market that where we end up with political solutions um, that kind of uh, where everybody loses. Yeah, I'm not sure it's gonna go back around. I think money is pushing them to one side or the other. The joy of public service is priceless. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Julie, why don't you tell us um, a little bit of advice to entrepreneurs in the room about how they can better work with a small city like yours um, and you know potentially beat out the next small city that's going to ban scooters and, and have a more productive and proactive relationship? Yes, I think one important thing is to realize the importance of having this community buy-in, that it really does matter to us. There was something that happened in Claremont well before I moved to Claremont, something involving a roundabout. I don't know the details, but I know that we'll probably never have a roundabout in Claremont <laughs> in my life, whatever happened there. Um, Getting things right in a small town like ours with the resources that we have the first time around is really important. We lose so much goodwill if we try something and it doesn't work. So having open lines of communication, being able to talk with us, being open to you know, adjusting and adapting if things aren't working well and reaching out and helping us have outreach to all of the community. We have the people who are really excited to ride bikes and scooters. I am in that camp. Yeah, I haven't had a car in 11 years. I love riding my bike everywhere. Um, but we have people who aren't interested at all and getting them to feel okay with the people who are interested coming in and using those different modes of transportation is really important for getting it to be successful. We need outreach to our business community to really believe what we know, which is that people who ride bikes and who are using you know, active forms of transportation shop more often and spend more money. We need our business owners to really believe that. We need the people who are driving the cars in our city, who are going to still be driving the cars in our city for a while, um, to understand how these vehicles work, where they belong, my 12-year-old a couple weeks ago got yelled at by someone to get up on the sidewalk where he belonged when he was riding his bike. We need everybody to understand, not just the people who are interested in using the devices, but we need help with that outreach and working together to figure out how we fit in with the community. I think the other piece to understand is working with us and trying to figure out what we can do with infrastructure, that we are working on getting safe places for people to bike, for safe people, places for people to ride scooters, California law now says that if you're on an e-scooter, you have to be in the road. We have roads that I wouldn't ride an e-scooter on. Um, and so we know that people, if they don't feel safe, are going to get up on the sidewalk. And I'm not going to fault them at all, because you can be right and dead, and you're still dead. 
So if you feel like that's your choice, you're going to get up on the sidewalk, whether that's where the law says you should be or not. So figuring out how we can work together to make sure there's safe places for people to be using the vehicles that are coming in is also important. Yeah. In the spirit of, Slita, you were saying about how um, a lot of the entrepreneurs and investors don't really know what it's like to be in the shoes of a city <laughs> planner, transportation planner. Um, can you just give a little taste of what it's like to get like a third protected micromobility lane built in a city? Sure, let me tell you a story about the west side of Los Angeles. So uh, a couple of years ago, um, we put in two protected bike lanes on a street called Venice Boulevard that goes through a neighborhood called Mar Vista and a street uh, in Playa Vista um, that goes through that neighborhood. Both of those streets are on, uh, or, or Venice at least, is on the city's high injury network. That means it's part of the 6% of all of our streets that account for two-thirds of the severe and fatal crashes for people biking and walking. Um, the street in Playa Vista, the summer before, uh, a 16-year-old girl named Naomi Larson had gotten hit and killed crossing the street back to her car coming from a bonfire at Dockweiler Beach. In order to put in those protected, that protected infrastructure, um, it, we're in a built-out city. We're not making new dirt. So we have to take something away from something else in order to create space. Uh, and we did that by taking away a lane of traffic. We took away two lanes of traffic on uh, Venice Boulevard. It was a, a six-lane street. Now it's a four-lane street. Uh, and we took away a lane of traffic uh, in Playa Vista. Immediately, almost overnight, a lot of folks actually from the, um, the venture capital and technology community who lived in Manhattan Beach launched a recall effort of the elected council member in that district for trying to do an evidence-based intervention to save people's lives in the future on a street where a family had lost their daughter. Because that is how much entitlement exists among people when they get behind the wheel of their car. I call it modal amnesia, where no matter how you're traveling, you have lost all empathy and understanding for every other mode of transportation, even if you yourself are also a bicyclist or a pedestrian or somebody who, who takes transit. Um, the same kind of opposition catalyzed on Venice Boulevard and Mar Vista. We ended up having to tear out uh, the protected lane in Playa Vista because the blowback was so political, so severe, and so well-funded by people who otherwise consider themselves to be environmentalists and supporters generally of democratic and progressive causes. Um, the, the project on Venice Boulevard and Mar Vista has catalyzed now a national movement against these kinds of improvements in cities across the U.S. It was called Keep LA Moving, and now it's called Keep the U.S. Moving, uh, or something along those lines. And right? got in the Wall Street Journal with an op-ed. Op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with a bow on it and everything. <laughs> so I, you know, as much as I appreciate the heavy push to get regulation in cities, um, I would love to see that same kind of organizing and platform building around getting the kind of infrastructure that we need for people to be safe who are using our streets today, let alone the people who are making decisions all the time about whether or not they want to jump on one of your products to use the street tomorrow. These are the kind of day-to-day um, -day battles that 
most of anybody who works in a city who's been working on bike infrastructure of the last 20 years will have a story just like that one, uh, where otherwise well-meaning people who probably voted at the ballot box to tax themselves to build a transit system in Los Angeles will fight like hell when it comes time to give something up on the street that's down, down the block from where they live. We have a really hard time acting in the interest of the collective good. And if we fail at drawing that bright line for people, um, then you know, we're, we're not going to achieve any, we're gonna continue to see the trends that Ryan pointed to. People are gonna continue to buy their own vehicles. Those vehicles are going to get bigger. They're going to get faster. They're going to get deadlier. Um, and the 12 years that we have to turn back the clock on climate uh, is, is going to be gone in an instant. And I'll point out that it doesn't have to be entire lanes to get people out and upset. You talk about taking out one parking spot to put in a bike corral or something, and people will turn up in droves. Bumper stickers, t-shirts, yes. political action committees. I mean, it's serious. All right, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up in a second, so just one more question. But that's, um, if you have a message to the entrepreneurs and investors in the room um, from the city transportation planning side, what, uh, what would you want to tell them? Sure. Um, we t so we have these two worlds, but there's a word we use, we both use a lot, that has two meanings, and it's equity, right? So I don't know if you use, when we talk equity in the public policy sector, we talk about making sure that communities where you're born predicts your outcome because you've got a crappy school, crappy transportation, crappy parks, crappy streets uh, that have been the result of racist policies over the past. We talk about that's an inequity and we're working on making equity by, by changing that. And that's how we see these transportation services like the universal basic mobility, love that concept. So. Um, the equity you talk about is about getting an equity investor. It's about equity ownership, okay? And I actually want us to start to merge those two ideas because to really get the social equity that we want, we need an equity. There needs to be sort of some form of co-ownership with the communities that we serve. And it, one of the ways we've pursued that in Oakland was Rather than us be the middleman in government, we formed a shared use mobility technical advisory committee and we brought the scooter and bike and all the operators together to meet with our community-based organizations in our communities of color to meet and say, hey, you listen to one another about what your needs are so that when we do these programs, there's a sense of ownership rather than a sense of deployment onto those communities. So, you know, some of the things that are most exciting that are potential is Lyme has, is, is hiring folks who train formerly incarcerated individuals and do job training for them. Um, there's been, you know, we can hire our homeless who are living under our freeways. We can hire our underserved communities as part of this industry. So think, I would ask that you think holistically as you grow your businesses because when you are able to build that coalition with those communities, the skids are greased regulatory. When you can show up at a city hall meeting with community-based partners who are, are true equity partners with you, you can get a ton done in our communities. Final words for the private sector? Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, uh, a big shout out to both Lime and Remix. I know Tiffany Chu is on a panel um, coming up here, but 
They were early adopters, believers, and evangelizers for the mobility data specifications. Um, and I think for us, we want, we want all that innovation in Los Angeles, no matter what the device is. We want it to come to LA. Um, but we want there to be buy-in and compliance and a healthy ecosystem around putting, putting cities back in the role of actively managing these modes um, using digital infrastructure. And that's a place where I think we both have a lot to learn from each other and we could actually be co-creating and co-designing something a lot more interesting and asking more interesting questions than we are now. Yeah, and I'll just add, I mean, Portland is really excited for all the in innovation that's uh, displayed here today and that we've been talking about. And I think there's just so much opportunity um, for, like Salibas just said, uh, to work together um, and to understand and manage what's happening on our streets, but then also to, to again, really share um, what that is and, and share that value with the rest of the community. All right, well, with that, we're going to close it up. Thank you so much to all you guys for Thank being you. the voice Thank of the you. public sector here. All right, thanks. Thank you.